Our first honored guest keeps a jar on his desk. Inside the jar is a worm. The worm's name is Henrietta. She is a guinea worm. Her habitat is formaldehyde. Henrietta embodies the mission to which our guest has devoted himself for decades, eradicating the terrible parasitic disease known as guinea worm, which has plagued people in Africa and Asia for centuries. The number of people tormented by guinea worm disease has dropped precipitously since our guest began waging his battle in 1986. Then, there were some three and a half million cases worldwide. Now, reportedly, there are fewer than 600. The end is in sight. The dreaded fiery serpent of the Old Testament has not been his only target. He has played a central part in the international campaigns to rid the world of river blindness and to control measles. And early in his career, he was a key figure in the hugely ambitious and successful global fight to eradicate smallpox, one of the great achievements of modern public health. He is a graduate and former faculty member of our own School of Public Health. He was deputy director and acting director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and in recent years, he has led the worldwide health programs of the Carter Center. President Carter has called him, and I quote, an individual with passion and heart, committed to alleviating the suffering of millions who go unnoticed by the media. There have been few heroes in my life, President Carter has said. He is one of them. We honor a hero of global health, Donald Hopkins. Vanquishing fiery serpents with missionary zeal, banishing plagues from countless houses, he nimbly wields the rod of Asclepius with a scientist's skill and a humanitarian's care. Donald Roswell Hopkins, Doctor of Science. As a child, our next guest liked to walk in the woods with her grandfather. She watched the birds. She learned about the wildflowers. 
She earned pocket change foraging for crawfish and selling them as bait. Her childhood love of nature blossomed into a professional passion for science. Today, she is one of the world's foremost investigators at the crossroads of chemistry and biology. Her work has shown how the building blocks of RNA are transformed into the building blocks of DNA, a process essential to DNA replication and repair. She has shed essential light on the enzymes known as ribonucleotide reductases and the molecules known as free radicals. Radicals, I might add, wholly unrelated to her student days in the late 60s in Berkeley. <laughs> her investigations have earned her the National Medal of Science for demonstrating the power of chemistry to solve biological problems. They have led to new therapies for pancreatic and other cancers. And they have advanced efforts to make environmentally friendly plastics. Throughout, she has been driven by a sheer fascination with the mysteries of nature. Enzymes do a lot of pretty cool things, she has said, and I love discovering exactly how they do it. It's a pleasure to welcome our pretty cool neighbor from down Mass Ave, who has scaled the heights of science while toiling at a humble technical institute. <laughs> perhaps best known for its proximity to Toscanini's ice cream. <laughs> we honor from MIT, Joanne Stubby. Joanne Stubby, professor at MIT, distinguished chemist. Boundlessly curious, relentlessly rigorous, enwrapped by the helical strands that encode our existence, a sage of science who elucidates enzymes crucial to the chemistry of life, Joanne Stubby, Doctor of Science. Our next guest shows us why economics is a deeply social science. His work springs from a drive to understand, and I quote, how people's lives come to be what they are, and how economics can help improve the prospects of people who are hugely constrained in what they can be and do. Asked to, pro to produce a brief general introduction to economics, he framed it as a story about two young girls. One, Becky, comes from a comfortable family in the Midwestern United States. The other, Desta, from an impoverished family living in a mud hut in Ethiopia. He explains economics not just through his eyes, but through theirs. He does so with analytic rigor, but also with an empathetic determination to consider how economics can help address deprivation and hunger, how it can expand life's opportunities for people born without silver spoons 
maybe without spoons at all. He has made important contributions across a remarkable range of subfields, economic theory, knowledge and innovation, game theory, political economy, poverty and nutrition, and environmental economics, to name just some. He has written compellingly about human population growth and the risks it poses to exhausting the world's resources. He has confronted the question of how to value a nation's wealth, urging that we take proper account of natural resources in measuring an economy's worth. In this sense, he has envisioned economics not only as a social science, but as a natural science, one obliged to embrace nature as a core concern. We honor, from the University of Cambridge, Sir Partha Dasgupta. An inexhaustibly resourceful economist, dauntless in confronting the largest of questions, he trains his keen eye on the plight of the poorest and insists we value nature when we gauge the wealth of nations. Partha Sarati Dasgupta, Doctor of Laws. Shakespeare recognized music as the food of love. Our next guest recognized music as the food of opportunity. He is the renowned creator of El Sistema, an ingenious program he conceived in his native Venezuela nearly 40 years ago. It has given disadvantaged children, by now hundreds of thousands of children, the chance to make music. And through music, it has given them the chance for a better life. El Sistema invites young children, especially in economically disadvantaged communities, to join an orchestra. The children often rehearse five days a week, three or four hours a day. For Venezuela, El Sistema has become not just an ambitious form of extracurricular enrichment. It has become a full-fledged nationwide social program, a pathway for children to come together, to work hard, to learn, to collaborate, to aspire, to participate in something that gives them a sense of pride and belonging, and that inspires the communities they live in. If not for El Sistema, said a typical participant who took up the French horn, I'd either be dead or still living on the streets. Communities around the world have taken to pursuing versions of El Sistema in England and India, in Australia and Korea, across Latin America and here in the United States. We sometimes remark on the power of the arts to transform lives. Few, few people in the world personify that ideal as vividly as our honored guest. 
The most holy of human rights, he likes to say, is the right to art. We applaud Maestro Jose Antonio Abreu. Magnanimous maestro of an uplifting movement, orchestrating harmonies that far transcend the stage in the sublime power of music, he finds opportunity's major key. Jose Antonio Abreu, Doctor of Music. Struck by the range of disciplines our next guest has crossed, physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, engineering, an interviewer asked him, so what kind of an ologist are you? <laughs> I'd say, he replied, I am a scientist with a short attention span. <laughs> no one can doubt the span of his influence on modern science. He grew up in Australia fascinated by puzzles. He studied at the University of Sydney, then was a lecturer in applied math here at Harvard, before serving at Sydney, then Princeton. For the past 25 years, his home has been England, where he has served as a professor at Oxford, as president of the Royal Society, and as chief scientific advisor to the British government and head of its Office of Science and Technology. His research has, in one colleague's words, revolutionized the mathematical approach to ecology and infectious diseases. Awarding him the Crawford Prize, sometimes called Biology's Nobel, the Royal Swedish Academy cited him as the person who had exerted the greatest influence on theoretical and empirical ecological research over the previous quarter century. He earned the International Balzan Prize for his seminal contributions to the mathematical analysis of biodiversity. He earned the prestigious Blue Planet Prize for devising models vital to both ecological preservation and disease control. <clears throat> Knighted by the Queen, named a life peer in the House of Lords, he is not only an eminent scientist, but a leading statesman of science, a champion of the scientific enterprise and its animating values of free inquiry and fidelity to reason. We honor Lord May of Oxford, Robert May. Robert May, A prodigious polymath and peerless peer whose mind conceives models that sustain life and whose voice resounds in support 
of enlightened inquiry. Robert McCready May, Doctor of Science. She has interpreted the ancient and long-lost documents known as the Nag Hammadi scriptures. She has revisited the Garden of Eden for enduring lessons about sex and politics. She has probed the origin of Satan and the practice of demonizing one's opponents. She has reinterpreted gospels, reassessed the book of Revelation, and explored the nature of heresy and belief. She has even jousted about Judas with Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Throughout it all, our next guest has emerged as one of the Academy's foremost scholars of religion, especially the history of early Christianity. Her books and articles have infused long-standing religious debates with fresh light and arresting insight. With erudition, elan, and sometimes audacity, she has both reshaped academic discourse about religion and brought provocative questions about religious tradition to a wide public audience. She holds her PhD from our own Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She is past chair of the religion department at Barnard. She earned Rockefeller, Guggenheim, and MacArthur fellowships all within three years. She has won the National Book Award, as well as her home institution's Distinguished Teaching Prize. She is now the Harrington Spear Payne Foundation Professor of Religion at what is arguably America's finest university within a 20-mile radius of Exit 9 on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> we welcome back to Harvard, and we honor, Elaine Pagels. Bold expositor of the Gnostic Gospels, reading ancient scriptures anew, a scholar transcending tradition's constraints to bring forth books of revelation. Elaine Heisey Pagels, Doctor of Laws. <laughs> Our next guest has been known to spur his colleagues to action by quoting a line from Waiting for Godot, let us do something while we have the chance. They are words that capture how he has seized opportunities in his own life and sought out chances to improve the lives of others. A lifelong North Carolinian, he was the first in his family given the chance to go to college. He attended UNC Charlotte and earned enough credits to graduate after three years. He applied to Harvard Business School. The envelope that came back in the mail, alas, was thin. Undaunted, he spent his senior year studying poetry, music, and art. 
he reapplied to HBS. Today, he is one of the school's most distinguished and devoted graduates. Given the chance to run his family's construction business, he expanded it into a vital force in Charlotte's development. Given the chance to chair the board of the Bank of North Carolina, he transformed its fortunes. Given the chance to serve on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education, he helped guide the historic integration of the county's public schools. Given the chance to lead the North Carolina State Board of Education, he used his formidable powers of persuasion to advocate for better teacher pay. As president of the University of North Carolina system for 11 years, he made affordability a paramount priority, assuring that thousands of young people would enjoy the chance he was given years before. An extraordinary philanthropist, he has supported education, human services, arts, and culture with a special eye to creating opportunity for students at both UNC and HBS. The Campus Center at Harvard Business School, the heart of student life, bears his family name. Past president of Harvard's Board of Overseers, past chair of the HBS Visiting Committee, and one of Harvard's most dedicated alumni, he is known for his humility, integrity, self-effacing humor, and his wonderful way of connecting with everyone he meets. We honor and we thank Dick Spangler. Exponent of education, executive extraordinaire, a transformative benefactor, both gracious and wise, who always does something for others while he has the chance. Clemmy Dixon Spangler, Jr., Doctor of Laws. Our next guest has been the boss of Boston for nearly as long as the lives of the seniors who graduate today. <laughs> he is the longest serving mayor in the history of one of our nation's oldest and greatest cities. And he is known near and far as one of the most effective, dedicated, and deservedly popular public servants to have held office in recent times. He leads with a passion for the people he serves. For 20 years, and a decade before that as city councilor, he has invested the whole of his being in the well-being of Boston's neighborhoods. He has worked to promote the city's prosperity to strengthen its schools, 
to improve safety, to assure access to health care, to enhance the quality of life. He treats his constituents like family. He attends countless events, attends to countless concerns, spends countless hours on issues large and small, all to serve the city he loves. Not least of all, he deeply appreciates the value of this region's many colleges and universities and has been a true friend of higher education and research. He has led through times of achievement and celebration, and also through times of grief. Six weeks ago, terror and tragedy struck Boston. And at the interfaith service that followed, he spoke with simple, heartfelt eloquence about the city that is his pride and his home. I'm telling you, he said, nothing can defeat the heart of this city. Nothing. Nothing will take us down because we take care of one another. Even with the smell of smoke in the air and blood on the streets, tears in our eyes, we triumphed over that hateful act on Monday afternoon. It's a glorious thing, the love and the strength that covers our city. It will push us forward. It will push thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the finish line next year. Because this is Boston, a city with the courage, compassion, and strength that knows no bounds. We salute a public servant whose own courage, compassion, and strength know no bounds. The mayor of Boston, the Honorable Thomas M. Menino. Now, everyone on this consummate mayor of the people, for the people, an urban mechanic turned urban legend, whose love of his city and passion for its betterment have made and kept Boston strong. Thomas M. Menino, Doctor of Laws. Among many, many other things, our final guest is a movie producer. And if someone had come to her as a producer to pitch a script based on her own life story, she might understandably have dismissed it as improbable beyond belief. She spent her early childhood on a small pig farm in rural Mississippi, reared by her grandmother. 
Her preteen and early teenage years in Milwaukee brought poverty, abuse, and personal tragedy. But she did far more than persevere. By her late teens, she had been crowned Miss Black Tennessee and earned a scholarship to Tennessee State. By 22, she was co-hosting a television talk show in Baltimore. She recalls that its premiere featured her interview with the Carvel ice cream man. <laughs> in 1984, she moved to Chicago and began hosting the daytime show that soon took her name. It went into national syndication and in time became the most watched and most Emmy awarded program of its kind in American television history. Today, she is one of the most admired and influential people in the world. Her celebrated talk show ran for 25 years and reached a vast international audience. She has launched a magazine, a radio channel, and a cable network. She has produced movies, TV programs, and a Broadway show. She has led a worldwide book club and championed the importance and the pleasure of reading. She has established herself as one of the savviest and most successful entrepreneurs of our time. She is also a renowned philanthropist whose public and private charities have benefited women, children, and families around the world. She has been an especially devoted supporter of education, <laughs> generously funding scholarships and schools, and founding a leadership academy for girls in South Africa. No one has done more to encourage Americans to read says one admirer, and no one has better exemplified the responsible use of commercial success and philanthropic resources. When she started out in Chicago, her audience was so thin that people had to be pulled in off the street and bribed with coffee and donuts in order to, pull, to fill the seats. Looking out from this stage, I think we can fairly conclude that this is yet another obstacle she has managed to overcome. <laughs> More than 40 years since she was crowned Miss Fire Prevention of Nashville, Tennessee, in the land of the Grand Ole Opry, we proudly honor Oprah Winfrey. Opening books, opening doors, opening minds to life's possibilities, a bountiful altruist and woman of valor whose audiences owe her a spirited standing O. Oprah Winfrey, Doctor of Laws. I guess I'm going to give you a hand. Of course. 